Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Hey, Shiloh. Hey, how are you? <laughs> Too great. Um, <laughs> all right, so this week we are finishing off Ammonihah. Huh? If people listening have had a chance to listen to the LDS Liberty podcast we did on Ammonihah, they might get a little more fleshing out of the story, a little more detail in the context of Liberty discussion. We may touch on that a little bit, but I'm sure we're going to get into some other things that we noticed as we were reading through this this week. Alma and Amulek have been preaching to the people. They finally got through to at least one guy here, Zeezrom, and we're going to find out some other people start listening here in a bit. But uh, starting with chapter 13, uh, Alma jumps into this discussion of the priesthood, which, you know, it it almost seems out of context here in this uh, story of Ammonihah. I mean, these people are uh, extremely wicked. We're going to see what they do in the next chapter. Uh, why would you be talking to them about the holy order or the priesthood? I mean, this just seems beyond the the point of discussion at this point. Um, what do you think, Shadow? Yeah, I love that because in chapter 13, we begin to see this juxtaposition of the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of men, that the people of Ammonihah were seeing themselves as a as almost a moral theocracy, because they keep on talking about how Alma and Amulek are listening to the devil, and they're from the devil because they're reviling against their laws. But yet they see the authority that Alma has as the high priest of the church, so they're fighting against the church, but they're also propping up their laws, but they're also adding this moral twist to it that anything against their law is the devil. And so it's, uh, you know, everything's the devil to the people of Ammonihah that reviles against their law. And when you have this now juxtaposition between the priesthood and what the people of Ammonihah were fighting for, this reminds me of what we were talking about before, that when the angel had told Alma to go back to talk with them, that he said that they are studying at this time to destroy the liberty which God has given them. So this whole context is about liberty, but it's a new type of liberty. It's a liberty that wasn't sociopolitical. It's a liberty, it's the true sense of liberty that comes from keeping the commandments of God and establishing a new kingdom. And we know from prophets that the priesthood is the government of God. And so we, I think we're really seeing here a juxtaposition between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of men that Ammonihah was trying to double down on. And we're going to find out how that ends. Yeah, you know, uh, any discussion of the priesthood, especially this one in, in Alma 13, makes me think of that that old quote from uh, Bruce R. McConkie, where he talks about the doctrine of the priesthood. Um, and I, I really should have pulled it up, but it's from a talk uh, back in 19, I want to say 1980 or 1982, uh, from a general conference talk called The Doctrine of the Priesthood. And he starts off by saying uh, something to the effect of the doctrine of the priesthood is really not discussed in its true sense of what we're really talking about here 
much in the scriptures or manuals of the church, and it can only be learned as taught directly from the Spirit, directly from the Lord. And I think that Alma, here we get we get some hints of what Alma is trying to teach about the priesthood here, the true priesthood and true authority. And I don't know if, you know, we're going to be able to flesh it out any more than any of the scriptures do, because again, I think Bruce R. McConkie was right on this point, that this is something that has to come through revelation, as DNC 121 says, you know, dues from heaven. But I like how Alma points out here that the true authority comes um, through righteousness and faith, through our emulating and seeking to follow Christ and become like him, and that that's the real calling of the priesthood. The real calling of the priesthood is to follow Christ. As we emulate him, that we point others towards him as well. And that's always what we're seeking to do, point others to Christ through our example, through our words, through our exhortation, through our love, ultimately, um, as we try to emulate his actions. So here, Alma is really trying to do that. I feel like in this context, he seems to be speaking more to the people that are really starting to sincerely listen to him. The wicked lawyers, judges of the people of Ammonihah, I think he understands at this point, most of them are not going to listen with an honest heart. And so it seems like he is now able to give a little more of this pattern of Zion, government of God, priesthood, taking upon ourselves the name of Christ to this people who are ready to listen. And I don't know how or if this prepares them in any way for what's coming, but they certainly get to experience what it really means to take upon themselves the name of Christ in the most severe sense. I love that talk from Bruce R. McConkie. Um, yeah, it comes uh, April 1982, and it's during priesthood session. And I, I just pulled it up since you were talking good, about it because good. this is. I was hoping I could talk long enough that you could do that. <laughs> <laughs> This is absolutely, absolutely one of my favorite talks from McConkie. And he opens up, it's even the second verse when he opens up, this doctrine, this doctrine of the priesthood, unknown in the world and but little known even in the church, cannot be learned out of the scriptures alone. It is not set forth in the sermons and teachings of the prophets and apostles, except in small measure. The doctrine of the priesthood is known only by personal revelation. It comes line upon line, precept upon precept, by the power of the Holy Ghost to those who love and serve God with all their heart, might, mind, and strength. You know, this reminds me, I, I received my patriarchal blessing from Elder G. Smith, the patriarch of the church. He was the last patriarch of the church um, when I was 14, and, I got, and, uh, and he was uh, Hiram Smith's you know, great-great-great-grandson. Um, I think it was a great-great-great. He may have just been a great-great. He may have been a great. <laughs> I have to look at the gene- I'll have to look at the genealogy not again. Not sure how many G's we're talking. I'm not about. sure how many G's we're talking about, but <laughs> I didn't realize. Of course, I was 14, and my parents set it up, and it was an amazing experience. But I got to go into the Joseph Smith Memorial Building and, and sit down with him, and I didn't realize. I've since learned as an adult because I've read a lot of things about him, but he liked to talk for an hour or two, sometimes even three hours, with the person he was giving a blessing to. 
and just talk about the gospel and the plan of salvation. So I was a 14-year-old boy going into his office and sitting down with him and talking about the plan of salvation, and I wasn't prepared for it. Man, <laughs> if, talk about things you could possibly do over in your life. That would have been a completely different experience. But one of the stick things- Stick a tape I, recorder in your pocket. <laughs> yeah, right? I had no idea. I've been like all over that. Just stick it in there for posterity's sake because, man, he was- he was dropping names of, you know, like, yeah, it was the cousin Joseph and uncle Albert used to take me through the temple. And that's like cousin Joseph Fielding Smith and uncle George Albert Smith. And anyway, <laughs> um, one of the things that he talked about such was over about the, <laughs> such a name dropper. <laughs> yeah. He, and he could, right. Cause that's who he was. But one of the things that stood out to me was that he said that the patriarchal order of the priesthood, he goes, now Shiloh, have you ever heard about the patriarchal order of the priesthood? And I'm 14, right? And I've heard I've heard about it. Um, it's something that my parents would talk about from time to time, or I'd hear little whispers of here and there, but I had no idea. And so I, I was like, I've heard about it, but I don't know anything about it. And he said the same thing as McConkie. He said, the patriarchal order of the priesthood is something that will very rarely, if and if ever, be talked about over the pulpit. He says, this is a doctrine that Christ reserves himself to talk about and to teach us when we're ready for it. And that stuck with me because I was like, wow, that's amazing. So, yeah, I love that when you bring this up that, that McConkie's talking about it. And even President Nelson, I think it was in 2016, October 2016, I could be wrong, but he talks about the price of priesthood power. And he even laments that we as a church don't understand what priesthood is. That he's he's worried that that we're going to wake up having no idea what this thing is. The priesthood is like the one defining characteristic of the church in the latter days. I thought that's that's the one claim that we have, right? That uh, differentiates us from any other church is we have this claim to priesthood authority, and we have no idea what this is in general. We've got a we've got a few discourses, you know, and and there's there's quite a bit written about it, but um, I I just like. Elder McConkie said, we're scratching the surface. But when I go in here to 13, into chapter 13 of Alma, this is such an amazing chapter for me because he's trying to teach the commandments to the children of men that they might enter into God's rest. Now, I've thought about this a lot in what constitutes God's rest. What is, what is the next life going to afford us? We talk about heaven being this place of rest and no more worries or cares or concerns but I, I really don't know if that's it. I mean, when we think about the pre-mortal life, there was a war in heaven. There was conflict. There was sorrow. There was, there was anger. There was resentment. There was, there was major upheaval in the presence of God. And if that can happen then, then are we just have this imagining that it's always going to be clouds and little you know, naked baby cherubs floating around with harps and everything that are um, that are just there to bring us peace? Is that what it's going to be like? And we just jump around from cloud to cloud? And it's not. That's not what it's going to be like. And I think we also oversell this point a little bit like to the glory of God that we talked about last time. We tend to think about God coming in massive amounts of glory. But when Alma talks about him coming in his glory from chapter 9, he's talking about certain special characteristics of Jesus, like his, his mercy and his, and his long suffering, his equality and his patience and his, and his long suffering. Those are what bring his glory. So when I look at chapter 13 and what the rest that God has in store for us, 
I'm not really thinking that it's that same kind of like heaven and, and the eternities are going to be some kind of let's just sit back and be on the beach for the rest of our lives kind of rest. I think it's something else. I think it is something else. Um, the scripture where Christ says, take my yoke upon you for my burden, or what does he say? My my yoke is easy, my burden is light, something to that effect. I memorized it before. I shouldn't have to. <laughs> right. <laughs> we, we get the idea. <laughs> anyway, you know the scripture. And, um, but goodness, if we really think about that, what is Christ's yoke? What is his burden? I mean, it's the burden of the sin of the world. How can that be light? Well, uh, what he's saying is that if we really do take upon ourselves his name, that we will find rest to our souls, even though the burden seems enormous, that is the way to peace is by following Christ. I like how in verse 8, um, when he's talking about this calling of the high priesthood, he first talks about the ordinance and ordination, right? This very formal and ritualistic type of thing. At least that's kind of our perception of it, done by a calling and ordinance and so forth. And he says that in verse 9, though, he says, and thus they become. And they become high priests forever. After the order of the Son, the only begotten of the Father, who is without beginning of days or end of years, who is full of grace, equity, and truth. And this is going back to the glory that you were talking about, right? That the ordination, as DNC 121 says, you know, anybody can have hands laid on their head, begin the priesthood, or anybody can go through some sort of ordinance, um, the motions of something. Uh, but ultimately... This is to, the, the point of our experience is to give us a connection with God so that we can become what we're supposed to become. We can actually take upon ourselves the name of Christ. So often, though, I'm guessing that it's just a, um, a tendency of our celestial existence and worldly mindset that it becomes a cause and effect type of thing. We think that the performance of the ordinance is causing us to become. You know, DNC, I believe it's DNC 84, almost hints at that. But when you really, really read close, we see that the ordinances of the priesthood aren't what are making us become anything. They are merely a, an outward manifestation of what we are supposed to be becoming in our hearts and a willingness to humble ourselves and obey. And it's not, it's not a cause and effect. The cause is Christ. And the effect is what it, it makes us into, what we become because of him. Wow, that's a really great point. I love that. Because I had an experience about a year and a half, two years ago, when I felt that for the first time in my life, I actually experienced what my baptism symbolized. And that, that was a powerful experience for me because I started to realize that we go through the motions of our ordinances and our rites and our rituals, and, you know, we take the sacrament and that is in itself an experience to take, to sit there in church or, or in our homes now, right? And to, and to partake of the bread and to have a moment, uh, almost like a meditative moment uh, and a reflective moment, a moment that reinvigorates and that we are able to reapproach our week and that we approach the ordinance as though that were the experience. 
But the thing is, is that this, the sacrament is symbolic of, well, it's, you know, the, the bread there is symbolic of the body of Christ, but we're not, we're not Catholics in this sense in that we believe that we're literally eating the flesh of Christ. That's even symbolic of something of us eating and partaking of the blood of Christ and the, and the body of Christ. So even that is symbolic. So the sacrament has like layers two, of symbolism here. <laughs> that's right. And, and it all comes down to an experience we're supposed to have. Now, baptism is supposed to be, it's not, and I don't like the way sometimes we talk about it. It's just a personal thing. It's, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just my own personal ego. But when we talk about baptism as going down into the water and coming out clean, as though like the baptismal waters mm. were some kind of like spiritual bleach water, you know, and you get down there and you come out and you're all white and clean or whatever. That's not the symbolism. The symbolism is it's death. That you go down into the water, which represents chaos and oblivion and destruction, and that old thing that you were is gone. It's dead. It is left behind, and you come up out of that, out of the chaos and out of the destruction of the water, because water is always destruction and chaos in, in symbolism in, in the Old Testament. You come out of that a brand new person, living out of the chaos, as it were. And that person is clean because it's brand new. So baptism is an experience. I remember when I was baptized when I was eight, and that wasn't a memorable experience for me. But it was symbolic of other experiences. And so I had, what experience it was for me is not important, but it's that I actually had an experience where I knew that the old me was gone, and it was going to be gone forever. And that the new me standing here was going to be a completely different person than I had ever been before. And I was like, that's exactly what my baptism symbolizes. It's not that the, the ritual and the rite itself is the point. It's that it symbolizes an experience we are supposed to go out and be having in our regular life. And then we come back and we, we reapproach the symbol and, and to focus our minds. But that's not the point. The point is to go out and to live that symbol and to have that experience out there. So when you, you read this and talk about how they actually became these things, yeah, I like that a lot. Well, and and the symbol is celebrated both in the sense of, you know, celebrate can mean two things. It, it can mean just to do something, and it can also mean to joy about it or you know, have a celebration, so to speak, right? But the, the ordinance is celebrated basically because that is the outward manifestation of it. And in a social sense, that's what we try to do. We're celebrating this the performance of this ordinance for a person in expectation that this change has already happened in that person or is happening in that person or will happen at the right time to that person and because of the temporal existence we live in we take that we make an ordinance out of it or the lord has given it this to us in our temporal existence so that we might gain some grain of understanding so that we celebrate that within a moment. It's really an eternal experience that we're supposed to be having. And so we need to take that and realize that what's really to be celebrated, what's really to be joyed about is that eternal experience of our existence in continually becoming a new us, like Christ taking upon ourselves his name. But because, again, because we have that ordinance that we actually celebrate in symbolism of that experience, we often place too much emphasis on that and its importance rather than the actual change of heart that is supposed to be happening. 
It's difficult not to do. I don't know how to get away from it completely, except to just keep talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think 16, verse 16 here in chapter 13, is speaking to a lot of what you're saying when it says, Now these ordinances were given after this manner, that thereby the people might look forward on the Son of God, it being a type of his order, or it being his order, and that this might they might look forward to him for a remission of their sins, that they might enter into the rest of the Lord. There you go. And there's that word rest again. And so rest is, I, I notice rest all throughout chapter 13 this time. It's mentioned multiple times. And over in, going backwards three verses, it says, Now my, my brethren, I would that you should humble yourselves before God and bring forth fruit, meat for repentance, that you may also enter into that rest. Now, I think repentance is, I think it's one of those, those words that we have equated with simply asking for forgiveness and that there are stages of how to ask for forgiveness and how to overcome not doing bad things. But I absolutely love and adore the Bible dictionary's definition of repentance in the Elias Bible dictionary. The very first verse, it says repentance, the Greek word of which this, this is the translation denotes a change of mind a fresh view about God, about oneself, and about the world. And I just love this so much because this is talking about identity. So for me, this is, this is about identity. It's to see God new and to see ourselves new. And then we see the world around us new. This is Enos's story all over again. He saw his relationship with God change. Then he saw himself change. Then he saw his people change. Then he saw his relationship to his enemies change. This is the repentance process. And that's what he was looking for here. This is, this is fruit meat for repentance. This is repentance is that you are changing your identity. And so going back to the juxtaposition between the identity to the city-state and to the political institution of Ammonihah versus the priesthood that Alma and Amulek are now giving them, I'm really seeing here in chapter 13 that what Alma and Amulek are truly offering the people of Ammonihah is basically Zion. Right. He, he's offering them this new way of being, and we know that the priesthood is all about persuasion and gentleness and meekness and kindness and love and long-suffering and all those principles that are mentioned in DNC 121. And we're going to see the opposite of that from the people of Ammonihah who use coercion and violence and all sorts of things. But now the people who have repented, they have not just repented and changed their minds in that they've been forgiven of past sins, which, which happens in that process, but now they see themselves as something completely new. They see themselves as Christ's themselves. They see themselves taking upon themselves that name of Christ, being after that order of the Son of God. And that becomes the entire conversation that we see unfolding here before Alman Amulek and all the priests there from Ammonihah. I love how that leads into the next chapter because here he has offered these people Zion. And we're going to see some people who apparently want to live that way. They do desire that. And they desire it so much that they are willing to take upon themselves the name of Christ and literally take up their cross and follow him. Because what it means is that they're going to experience this martyrdom 
And it, what it means is also that those, their loved ones who are going to witness this or going to um, hear about what happens to their family are going to experience the anguish and the sorrow and the grief that comes from this horrible thing that's about to happen. And, you know, it's all part of that discipleship. And you want to say, well, wait a second, when we follow Christ, we're supposed to experience joy and we're supposed to be liberated. And here we have people who have just chosen to follow Christ and instead they're experiencing the worst thing they've ever had in their life. They're experiencing the pains of fire. They're seeing their loved ones stoned. They're seeing they're being cast out from their people that they've lived in. I mean, things that are happening, I don't know if worse things can happen to people. And so here we have to sort of step back and question ourselves. What does this mean about being a disciple of Christ? What does this mean about accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ? And it's probably not a very easy question to answer until we really sit down and ponder what Christ actually says about following him. I don't, I don't know that I have a whole lot of words to put that together, but this is certainly an example of a people that seem to get it, seem to understand it. And they understood it very quickly from the time that Alma preached to them till they're ready to accept it in a full sense. Yeah, you're talking about martyrdom and what's what's so sad and yet so beautiful about the sacrifice of the women and children. We see in, in 14.1 that, and it came to pass that he had made an end of speaking unto the people, and many of them did believe on his words and began to repent and to search the scriptures. Now, I in my mind, I see all these events happening really fast and like in, in very quick sub subsequential order. But for them to be able to begin to repent and to search the scriptures, unless everybody's carrying around scriptures and everybody's like feverishly flipping through their scriptures <laughs> and however that works for them, I think that this is probably a more drawn out conversation over a long period of time than just possibly they stood up one time in a discussion and began to give this discourse and then everybody got really mad and threw them all into the fire. I think this sure. is developing over time and... But it says, the more part of the people of Ammonihah were desirous that they might destroy Alma and Amulek. And they were angry with Alma because of the plainness of his words unto Zeezrom. And they also said that Amulek had lied and that he had reviled against their law and, the, and against their lawyers and judges. And because he had testified so plainly of their wickedness. What's fascinating now, I, I've said it before, but I study nonviolence a lot. And it's a belief system that I've found incredible beauty in about how it relates to the sacrifice of Christ and how it means to taking upon ourselves the name of Christ, that Christ is that sacrificial element, that Christ is the, the self-sacrificing, long-suffering uh, person for the other. In fact, all of the Sermon on the Mount, you have all of these moments of conflict where Christ speaks specifically to the victim. And in fact, it he's only speaking to the victim. He's the person who's smote on the right cheek. He's never talking to the person who's smiting. He's always to pro talking to the person being smitten. If you are taken before a court of law and are sued for your, for your coat, you're not talking about the person who's suing. You're talking to the person being sued. 
when you're conscripted and you're actually brought into kind of a, a slave relationship or you're conscripted into servitude, he's not talking about the person who's conscripting. He's talking about the person being conscripted. So Christ is always talking to the person who's suffering at the hands of the other, and he's giving them this ability of how to resolve these conflicts. And what's interesting is an early Christian thought martyrdom was the way of the Christ. They look at self-sacrificing and and to sacrifice yourself for the other as a way and means of representing themselves as Christ. And what I find is interesting here in chapter 14 is that we see all sorts of clues and evidence that the Nephites were also abiding by the same ideas and principles that the early Christians also abide by. And and here's some of the evidence for it. And it said that... uh, no, I guess, first of all, the word martyrdom from Greek, it's a Greek word, but it's also the same root word as witness. So witness and martyr actually have the exact same Greek root, Greek root word in, in martyr. And in fact, the Latin equivalency, it, it brings in that testimony actually has a relationship to witness as well. So witness and testimony also have the same basic concept. And so you see these three words of witness, testimony, or testify, and martyr. And we see all three words plainly in Alma 14. We don't see these words all over. The, we don't see these three words together in any grouping that I found anywhere else in the Book of Mormon, but we do see it right here. And in verse 8, And they brought their wives and the children together, and whosoever believed or had been taught to believe on the word of God, they caused that they should be cast into the fire, and also brought forth their records and contained the Holy Scripture and cast them into the fire that they might be burned and destroyed by fire. And it came to pass that they took Alma and Amulek and carried them forth to the place of martyrdom that they might witness the destruction of those who were consumed by the fire. Now, we also see that the people were reviling against Alma and Amulek's testimony. We see that now they are fighting against, now they're fighting with martyrdom. Now we see that Alma and Amulek are standing as a witness. And then we also see again in verse 11, And Alma said unto him, The Spirit constraineth me that I must not stretch forth mine hand. For behold, the Lord receiveth them up unto his glory. And he suffereth that they might do this thing, or that the people may do this thing unto them according to the hardness of their hearts. That the judgments which he shall exercise upon them in his wrath may be just, and the blood of the innocent shall stand as a witness against them. So now we have that word witness coming in again. All three words, all related, all dealing with this concept of taking upon ourselves the name of Christ and sacrificing ourselves kind of for, for what you are believing in and also for the other. Uh, the other point I see here is, is that Amulek realizes that they have the power to stretch forth their arm and to save the women and children. This is not a helpless situation. This is not a situation where they couldn't do something and they were just weaklings. They could do or something. Or cowards. Or cowards, exactly. They could do something, but something led them to letting the women and children die. Now, this is going to be a really important concept that I'll talk about again, and I'm sure you'll bring it up too, Ben, when we start to get into the war chapters, especially when we talk about how where it says that God commands us to defend our families even unto bloodshed. Well, this is where the Book of Mormon is going to get really interesting because we're going to be talking about different narratives and about how the people are living by different narratives in how they are governing their lives and the principles by which they are governing their lives. 
and the people who are taking upon themselves the name of Christ are going to be marching themselves into martyrdom, and those that are not we later find, you have to take up the sword and, and to defend yourself um, in that in that in that way. So the Book of Mormon is going to really start to unfold some fascinating truths here and doctrines as we start to see uh, how defending ourselves, because defense and deliverance are huge themes to Mormon. He loves these themes almost more than anything else. It seems that once he takes over narration. Um, it's going to be it's going to be really fun to look at these. I do like Amulek's question here to Alma uh in verse 10. He says, "How can we witness the Sophel Sea?" Right? And I, and I like how that word witness is in there his question to him. How are we going how can we stand this? How can we bear to not do anything about this when we feel like we really have the power to do something about it how are we going to just see it and not do anything about it right as if us just being here to see this we're just being passive and we're just being submissive to the ammonihaites and alma's response is his submission to the spirit, right? Not his submission to the wickedness and the hate of the Ammonihites because he's afraid or because he's powerless, because neither one of those is true. Alma is full of love, no fear. Alma has power. In fact, we're going to find out after he's in prison that Alma has power to be delivered. Prisons can't hold him. These things are subject to him, so to speak. So Alma is is rather being submissive to the spirit and saying, this is our calling to witness this. We have to be here to see this. This is part of what we've been called to do. And we will understand at some point why. And all I can tell you right now is that the Lord loves his children. And he's taking care of them. And he says he's receiving them into his glory. The faith and the authority that Alma speaks there in this statement of what's, what's actually happening. Amulek is seeing this awful thing happening. And Alma's saying, what you're seeing is not the reality of what's happening in terms of what the Lord wants us to understand about this situation. And that's uh, quite a statement of faith, right? Sounds fanatical. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not saying that I could be in that. Well, I know I, I, I'm pretty sure I couldn't be in this situation and behave like Alma does, but I can look at it and say that Alma in this moment does appear to really be emulating his savior. And, and his heart is in the right place. I think I brought it up last time about deliverance. That deliverance is one of these things that men seek for all the time in their fear. But when we live by faith, deliverance comes. But we're like, well, if it comes, it comes. <laughs> we're, we're not like actively out there seeking for it. But if it comes, it comes. And I see Alma a lot of the way here where he's like, be it according. Well, Alma like asks, he's like, behold, perhaps they will burn us also. 
So you can see a little bit of maybe timidity in Amulek. Maybe yeah. he's just maybe he's just asking a question. Maybe there's a little bit of timidity. I, I read it with a little bit of timidity. And Alma said, be it according to the will of the Lord. But behold, our work is not finished, therefore they burn us not. Wow. Just wow. To be in that moment, and I, and I love that imagery of Alma seeing the unseen. Alma seeing something else going on than obviously what the people of Ammonihah saw, obviously different than what Amulek saw, but he sees something more pure going on, something more eternal. And there's that word glory again. God's taking them into his glory. And typically I've thought before that God's taken them back into that whole, you know, angels and cherubs and, and harps and clouds again. So yeah, they're burning alive right now, but they'll be okay in about 20 seconds. You know, it's really morbid. But that's not what's going on here. What, Al, what Alma is talking about is that they're going to be taken into the state of grace and equity and truth where mercy among suffering and love envelop and surround them. Man, that's so much better than the jumping around on clouds with, with cherubs. For me, that just is, that's just amazing to have that be the reality. And, but the faith that it took for that to happen, it's just absolutely amazing. Amazing to see that kind of resolution that they would face, that the women and the children would face the fires as well, rather than recant. And the way that their chief judge here, I believe it's the chief judge, yeah, comes and, and starts mocking them. Uh, and he says in verse 15, Behold, ye see that ye had not power to save those who had been cast into the fire. <laughs> you didn't do it, therefore you couldn't have. Because obviously if you had the power to do it, you would have done it. Um, that's an interesting statement there about Man, that that so reflects agency. yeah doesn't that just reflect christ's martyrdom though too and mm. christ's sacrifice on the cross right where the pharisees look at him and says well he saved others why can't he save himself now right in that in that self-sacrificial paradigm the accusers come out saying just because you are self-sacrificing obviously it means you are weak and you can't do anything else but right wow uh, there, there's a lot of parallels here in this chapter, I mean, elsewhere, but especially in this chapter, um, between what Alma and Amulek are experiencing and what Christ experienced. And this is very interesting because Alma just got done talking about how um, a high priest is called after the order of the Son of God. And boom, here you go, Alma. <laughs> um now you're actually experiencing it. And what what is really fascinating about this story, goodness, not, not the one thing, but another thing that I've been thinking about here in terms of this, all these things that Alma and Amulek are experiencing, right? So they mock them, they spit on them, they smite them, all the exact same things. They put them in prison that they did to Christ. They were in prison three days. That was interesting that it mentions that. And then all at the end of this, it says, but they answered them nothing. And there were times in Christ's ministry and accusation and trial where he didn't answer. And uh, again, they're mocking him and saying, you know, why didn't you deliver yourselves and spitting on them and all these terrible things into them for many days. They starve them. 
But throughout all of this, Alma has Amulek with him. He's not alone, right? Notwithstanding all that the Lord is letting Alma experience, or having Alma experience, or I don't know, he is not leaving him alone. And this is an interesting contrast to the experience of Christ. There was a talk that Elder Holland gave years ago about Christ and his experience and how he, in in the most crucial moments, was alone, right? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I think that is a very appropriate contrast to the story of Alma, because what it does is it says Alma did take upon himself the name of Christ and did seek to experience, or maybe not even sought to experience, but did experience everything um, to a certain point that Christ did. But he never experienced the same amount of loneliness um, that Christ did. And Alma is not supposed to be our exemplar, but he's supposed to show us that there are quite a few, or the limits aren't maybe so tight as we thought in our ability to emulate Christ, that we really could um, get closer as if we are faithful and, uh, and diligent and really seek to follow him. One of the things we talked about before, Ben, is this concept of the knee horse, because that word caused comes up again because in Alma 1 when Nehor is confessing that what he was teaching was wrong it says and he was caused or rather he did admit that what he had preached was wrong and I have always found that interesting that word caused and yet we see that same word being used multiple times here in subsequent chapters and it's always in a negative tone where it's coercion or it's force that it wasn't a willing admission And so here we see Alma, who was the chief judge who carried out the sentence of death or who pronounced the sentence of death on Nehor for violating the law. And now we see Alma in front of the new new judge here in Ammonihah, who is a follower of Nehor. And we see that Alma is now having to deal as the high priest of the church with now the head of the city government who also happens to be after the order of the man that Alma had sentenced to death before. It's just the layers and layers of, of, of information and how this story is really unfolding for me is powerful. And to see that Alma really is taking on kind of that type of Christ here. And in fact, even with the Beatitudes, we've talked about that for the last couple of weeks, is the final Beatitude is blessed are those who are persecuted for Christ's name, for for his sake. For those who take upon themselves the name of Christ, we are to take up our cross and follow him. We are to follow him to Calvary. In fact, in the Book of Mormon, the the reference to the cross is used a, a small handful of times, you know, less than less than five. But one of them is in Jacob chapter one, verse eight, where it says, We would to God that we could persuade all men not to rebel against God, to provoke him to anger, but that all men would believe in Christ and view his death and suffer his cross and bear the shame of the world. And I see this happening right now with all the people who are being burned in the fires of Ammonihah. I see this happening with Alma and Amulek. 
that they are believing in Christ, that they are viewing his death and are participating in that death, that they are literally suffering the cross with Christ and in the name of Christ because they've taken that name upon them, and they are bearing the shame of the world. I mean, all the mocking and the ridiculing of power that governments have and that the people had to coming against these men of God and to the people of God was really to shame them. And even in the temptations of Christ, we see Satan taking Christ up and showing him all the kingdoms of the earth. There is real power there. There is real power that the kingdoms of the earth have power to go and do things. And for a temptation to be a really tempt for a, a true temptation for Christ, he he had to be tempted. There had to be something for him to be tempted by it, and to possibly say, "Yeah, should should I should I walk this path?" But yet Christ came out victorious through the temptation, because he doesn't take the arm of flesh. He doesn't take the power of the world. He then goes and he he doubles down on on that that priesthood authority, that persuasion and gentleness and meekness and love and kindness and long suffering that he suffers long with us. So I see that here with Alma. I see all of those themes coming out in Alma and Amulek and the people there in the fires. I like the contrast here in these these final verses, especially twenty six and twenty seven, between how Alma approaches the Lord and then the reaction of of people that are in the prison mocking him. He says, uh, Alma cried, saying, How long shall we suffer these great afflictions, O Lord? O Lord, give us strength according to our faith, which is in Christ, even unto deliverance. And they broke the cords with which they were bound. And when the people saw this, they began to flee, for the fear of destruction had come upon them. So, <clears throat> Alma and Amulek here are exercising faith unto deliverance. And when the people witness that, their reaction is fear unto destruction because they fear destruction. But there's no need. Alma and Amulek aren't going to destroy them. Surely they understand at this point that if Alma and Amulek really have this power, they could have destroyed them a long time ago. <laughs> they could have stopped all of these things like they were mocking them about, and they didn't. And they've been preaching to them about kindness and love and long-suffering, and they still fear. They fear Alma and Amulek. Here it says, So great was their fear that they fell to the earth and did not obtain the outer door of the prison. I think this... Um, helps us kind of understand this narrative a little better because um, apparently what's happening in this situation is God is just killing all the wicked people around Ami and Amulek by making the prison fall down, right? Um, but that isn't necessarily where the narrative has to go. Um, these people were so afraid, so devoid of any faith that this, as soon as they saw any amount of power, it evoked fear in them rather than awe or love or repentance and the fear was so great that they lost all power to move and they fell to the earth this isn't something that god caused this is their lack of the love of god their lack of faith their unwillingness to even empty themselves a little bit to give portion for the spirit of the lord so i think there's a there's a way to to look at that narrative a little different if somebody wanted to look that at that in in terms of a nonviolent way 
29 kind of drives this point home at the end of 29. It says, they were struck with great fear and fled from the presence of Alma and Amulek, even as a goat fleeth with her young from two lions, and thus they did flee from the presence of Alma and Amulek. I still, this is interesting to me because there's no need to fear Alma and Amulek. They, they have no desire to hurt these people. All of their desires and efforts have been in trying to persuade them to change their hearts and repent and find peace. They've never threatened them. They've said, if they were wicked, what's going to happen is their city will be destroyed, but they're not threatening them that they are going to destroy them. They're saying that's the consequence of their actions. I just think it's so interesting here that that they would fear so much uh, at this exhibition of power. Wow. I, I hadn't even thought about it until you had said there about 26 about how they had fear about destruction and there was no cause for them to fear. I had a conversation today in part of studying nonviolence. I've, I've had to study a lot of the murder scenes, a lot of the violent scenes in the scriptures. And the very first murder that ever happens is Cain and Abel. Mm. And so I've studied that a lot and, and it's become kind of a favorite a favorite story to be able to, to to discuss a lot about the nature of God there. But when you were talking about that, I actually had a conversation today about Cain and Abel, and so it's fresh on my mind. What's amazing about that story with Cain and Abel is exactly what you're talking about here, Ben. Because when God comes to Cain initially, he comes to Cain before Cain has done anything and has killed Abel. And he sees that uh, sin, you know, sin lieth at the door, crouch ready to, to, to pounce. Basically, God anthropomorphizes sin and warns Cain, you've got to be on your guard. Sin is coming after you, and you've got to be able to defend yourself and to be able to and to be able to check yourself when it comes. And eventually, once everything happens between Cain and Abel, what really stands out to me in that story is that, I mean, this is psychology 101, but to heal from trauma, there needs to be a vocalization of our trauma. So when you take someone who have, who has experienced a lot of trauma in their lives or who has caused trauma and is trying to heal from it, there needs to be a voice given to that. Right. And, and that is, begins the process of healing. And what I love about the Cain and Abel story is that God comes to Cain as soon as he's killed Abel and he asks Cain, hey, Cain, where's your brother? And Cain, knowing what he did, he's like, I don't know. And I'm like, am I my brother's keeper? And I've always wondered, why is God asking questions that he already knows the answer to? This this isn't an inquisition about trying to get Cain to confess something. And this isn't like a trial that God's like putting Cain on trial and trying to get him to confess so that he can condemn him. God comes to Cain and is and is saying, listen, I I need you to vocalize your your trauma. I need you to talk to get him to confess, but not to punish him in order to heal him. That's exactly right. And Cain is looking at this situation saying, well, I'm not my brother's keeper. So Cain is refusing to vocalize and to admit what he's done. And God's like, listen, Cain, your brother's blood, you know, blood being symbolic of life, your brother's life has been crying out to me. And in essence, I have healed him. I have heard his voice. I have taken care of Abel's trauma. I am here for you because God is treating Cain as a victim of the sin that he warned him about initially. And then Cain never admits what he does. And he buries that trauma. He buries that anger. He buries that narrative. He never puts it out. This becomes his curse. And what's fascinating here in in relation to what you said, Ben, is that Cain then worries 
that because he has killed Abel, other people will want to come and kill him. Well, this is the first murder. This is the first time someone has killed someone else. Why is Cain thinking this? God has never given Cain any thought whatsoever that he's going to have an eye for an eye justice, that if he kills someone, he gets killed back. Mm -hmm. This idea of retributive justice, of having what done to you, what you did to somebody else, is all in Cain's mind, not in God's. God did not put in his heart by Satan, but yeah, in his mind, exactly. Right. But God comes there saying, I am here to heal you. And yet Cain is saying, I don't want to be healed. I'm, I'm burying the anger and the resentment and the action and the accusing voice of Satan deep down in my heart. Thus, Cain loves Satan more than God. And then Cain goes out after this conversation, never healing from the trauma. And in my, in my copies of the NRSV, I have a, an Oxford and a HarperCollins and, a, and another edition. It says that the Cain narrative is what begins the story of civilization. Because Cain builds the first city, mm-hmm. Cain builds the first city wall. Cain builds the first, uh, the fir- his sons are become the first artisans and be- and build the first economy. So Cain is Cain is who the story of civilization goes through. Again, the juxtaposition between the cities and the and the the governments and the societies and the civilizations of men, and then it immediately says, and then Adam and Eve conceived and bore another son in Seth. And he was given the priesthood, and all of a sudden we have the new priesthood narrative coming out. But just like what you said here, Ben, God never gave Cain any reason for Cain to think that he was going to be hurt back. That had never happened before. There was no context for that. Cain, because of that accusing voice of Satan inside of himself, Cain is the one that introduces the idea that if you do something bad on one side, you have to have something bad done to you on the other side to equal that scale. God is here to save us. Satan is here to accuse, to try to make everything equal again. And here we see it's it's the same thing all over again. God's coming out here. There's no reason these people needed to fear Alma. Simply their lack an ability to repent and to vocalize their own trauma, them being sin, victims of sin. And you brought it up before with Zeezrom that Alma looks at Zeezrom and says, Satan who is your enemy Alma is already showing that he's not making Zeezrom the enemy. He's seeing that Satan is the enemy, the accuser's the enemy. That's the true enemy. And in this, you have nothing to fear from me. I'm not here to harm you at all. But yet, when they see them standing in true power of God, they have the fear of destruction. And it's illogical, but that's where that comes from. I see that the correlation between that and the Cain story really well. You know, and that that fits in a little bit with the narrative of Zeezrom here, because Zeezrom in this last chapter here, uh, it says that his soul began to be harrowed up under a consciousness of his own guilt, and he began to be encircled about the pains of hell. And it came to pass that he began to cry unto the people, be saying, behold, I am guilty, and these men are spotless before God. So here Zeezrom is acknowledging it, right? He's starting to confess, to get it out, get his trauma out of these awful things that he's spoken and then here in chapter 15, after Alma and Amulek have gotten out of prison, which, by the way, you know, we were talking about, there's no reason they needed to fear. You know, even at this point, these people could have come to Alma and Amulek and said, you know what? I was wrong. Um, I see that you have power. They could have humbled themselves. They could have repented. They could have followed Alma and Amulek over to Sidon, joined the people, and not been part of the wickedness of Ammonihah anymore. But their fear was so had such hold on them, the chains of hell, right? 
that they wouldn't they wouldn't even do that, even though they knew they had incontrovertible proof now that Alma and Amulek have true power, right? And all they do is fear power. But sorry, I kind of digressed there because it, it was an interesting point to me. But here we get to Zeezrom, and he has he's experiencing all of this guilt, right? And uh, of the awful things that he has done. And as soon as he gets the opportunity to talk with Alma, I love, I love the first thing that Alma says to him. He just says, Believest thou in the power of Christ unto salvation? And that's it. Do you believe in Christ? And if you do, you can be healed right away. In this very moment, your entire life can change and be turned around. And that's it. And it does. Immediately, we see Zeezrom. His entire life changes, not just the fact that he's been sick for a month because Alma and Amulek have been in prison for a long time since Ezra was kicked out, but he actually completely changes. He witnesses that by baptism, right? We talked about this ordinance thing before, and then he goes and preaches with Alma and Amulek. It's amazing. It's a, it's a great story. You know, Zeezrom, his courage is to be commended, I think. Oh man, Ben, can you imagine being Amulek though? Because Zeezrom's testimony is really what set up the is set up the grounds for the fires. Right. Zeezrom is the one who is causing this. Zeezrom can very much be the person who is pointed. Zeezrom's guilt is that he is the person who did this. And can you imagine being Amulek? Can you imagine Amulek coming into that moment and seeing him there, the cause of having everybody turn against him? Because we see in verse 16... When it came to pass that Alma and Amulek, Alma, Amulek having forsaken all of his gold and his silver and his precious things, which were in the land of Ammonihah, for the word of God, he being rejected by those who were once his friends, and by also by his father and by his kindred. Now we also know in chapter 10, these were people that Alma had literally blessed. Right. Amulek lets us know that Alma came in and he blessed my household. And so these were people who knew Alma. And on Zeezrom's testimony, that's it. They're not asking Zeezrom to make restitution. They're not asking him to come back and to pay it back. They're not asking Zeezrom to try to go out and to try to convert everybody that he, he didn't. They're not trying to have him do any of this. All that comes is saying Zeezrom. And I love that, I love that she brought that out. Believest thou in the power of Christ unto salvation. That's it. Do you believe in Christ? And that's it. The story's over. Amulek has no more recourse to this. You don't see Amulek coming here and saying, yeah, but you need to, you need to take on and you need to have guilt for everything that you did before. You need to, you need to go back and, and, and restitute for all of this. Oh, None he of this. sure could have, right? I oh, mean, man. completely justified in doing that. And I think Amulek did have a hard time with this. I mean, who wouldn't? Christ wouldn't, I guess, but um, who else wouldn't? Uh, and and here Alma is able to be with him. You know, Amulek was with Alma in his difficulty, and and now Alma is with him. In verse eighteen, I've always liked this verse, but for some reason it hit me a little harder this time. Alma, having seen all these things, therefore he took Amulek and came over to the land of Zarahemla and took him to his own house and did administer unto him in his tribulations and strengthened him in the Lord. I like that. You know, Alma here again is just emulating Christ. He says, just be with me. I'm just, I'm going to be with you because I can't, I don't know how else to heal this 
awful, horrible trauma you've just experienced with losing your family and, you know, not just losing them, but them casting you out and rejecting you and, and all this, this awful stuff that's happened. And then the fact that the person, one of the principal causes of all this repented and, and is instantly forgiven and, and you have to forgive him. And I'm just, I'm going to be with you because I know that's hard. And that's, that's great. Alma's awesome. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So yeah, 16 is, uh, is an interesting chapter because it, uh, it's a, it's a transition chapter and it often gets overlooked and, but we also know that Ammonihah is destroyed. It's destroyed in a single day. And so great is the destruction that the bodies are just left and the animals come and get them. And then finally they, they pile all the bodies on top of each other and just kind of throw dirt or, you know, shallow dirt over them. And they leave them there for several years because it smelled so bad. And they called it the desolation of the Nehors in 11. But here we see the, the culmination. You and I did a little bit of the, the math on the timeline. And we see that they were missionaries for about six years here. And from the time that Alma had left and it was in Zarahemla for the first year until the time that they finally came back. And in verse 21 of 16, and now after the church had been established throughout all the land, having got the victory over the devil and the word of God being preached in its purity in all the land and the Lord pouring out his blessings upon the people. Thus ended the 14th year of the reign of the judges of the people of Nephi. That the church had never been established. This was, this was the first time that the church had ever really been established this way. And it had never been before established in a manner of being able to. And, and the purpose of the church I find is interesting here is in verse 18. Now those priests who did go forth the pe- among the people did preach against the lyings and the deceivings and the envyings and the strifes and the malice and the revelings and the stealing and the robbing and the plundering and the murdering and the committing of adultery and all manner of lasciviousness, crying that these things ought not to be so or not so to be. Holding forth things which must shortly come, yea, holding forth the coming of the Son of God, his sufferings and death, and also the resurrection of the dead. So the church basically becomes this this moral standard and this institution where people can come in and they can worship, and they have this moral moral standard that they haven't had before in this way. And and from this point on, we now transition over into a different missionary story. We do. Um, there, there's a there's a small little narrative here in chapter 16 that I I saw some detail in it that I hadn't quite noticed before, and 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 it stood out to me. So you know the the Lamanites come and they take out Ammonihah, and then they capture some of the Nephites and they they take them back, and then the Nephites get their armies together and like, okay, you know it's time for us to go beat up a bunch of Lamanites again, and so they go to Alma. <laughs> And they say, hey, Alma, we need your help. We need to go get these people back. We have an army. You know, how how does Alma respond to this? After having just experienced everything that he's that he's experienced in the past, what did you say, is 14 years? I don't know. About six years. He's been, he's been out since, six years. They're, since he's been, in, yeah, 11th year of the reign of judges. Okay, 11, 11 years, you know. All, all these things that he's uh, just experienced, and here they're coming, you know, we're going to, we've got an army together. We want to go fight the Lamanites. <laughs> and I can imagine Alma saying, Oh, okay. Um, if that's what you want, you know, 
he goes to the Lord and the Lord gives him away. And and this is interesting because I I don't know uh I don't know what actually happened, but the scriptures do not say that any Lamanites were slain. Now surely we have the Nephites here with their army, you know, maybe they kill some people, but it's entirely possible that this army of the Nephites being led by what Alma told them knows where to go and what to do such that there doesn't have to be a war, a battle, so to speak. It says they went with their armies in verse eight, the Lamanites were scattered and driven into the wilderness. Now, usually when there's a phrase like this, it says they scattered and slew them and they pursued them and slew them. And it doesn't say that here. So I don't know, I may be inferring too much, but it seems like all the other times when there's some sort of a battle there, you know, it actually says that they killed some Lamanites and there's, there's not any indication right here necessarily that they killed them. And then they were able to recover their brethren and nobody, nobody died. So I think that it's, it's interesting that there's the possibility in this narrative right here that Alma was able to persuade and encourage the people to deal with the Lamanites in a less violent way in order to deliver their people. And so I, I thought that was an, an interesting thing there after having experienced all this, that, that Alma would be able to do that. I like here that after all of that's happened with Alma and Amulek in verse 13, it says the Amulek it went with Alma and they started preaching again, you know, that great, <laughs> all the stuff we just experienced, let's go out and, and experience it again, Alma. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I like how, when it says that in verse 16, that they were going to prepare the minds of the children of men or to prepare their hearts to receive the word, which should be taught among them at the time of his coming. In other words, the expectation here is that when Christ comes, he's going to tell them something new, something that without the preaching of the gospel and doing what the prophets have told them to do, they wouldn't be prepared to receive. It would be something that they couldn't understand. Verse 17, that they might not harden, they may not, might not be hardened against the word, that they might not be unbelieving and go on to destruction, but that they might receive the word with joy. Because Apparently, there's some preparation we need to do in order to receive the gospel with joy, as opposed to hearing it and hardening our hearts against it. Because uh, when we actually read the words of Christ, there's a lot in there that we could be less joyful about, right? In terms of him asking us to actually follow his example. So this ties up um, this whole missionary experience of Alma pretty well. And it's it's good because then in these following chapters, now it's like, okay, now what were Alma's friends all doing at this same time? And now we get their experience. So it's it's going to be very interesting to get into the whole experience of the Sons of Mosiah and how it compares with what Alma has experienced. Absolutely. And I love the format of the Book of Mormon here and what Mormon is seems to be trying to get us to see is that they've had kings now for 500 years. They transition to a voice of the people type system. They immediately transgress into wars and conflicts, and there's reasons for it with Nehor and Amlesai. And, and then Alma, who has the power of the, the secular political and the power of the religious, gives up the secular political, goes out to bear testimony with the religious, and then doing that, he comes smack right smack in into conflict again with the political that he just gave up in Ammonihah. So it seems to be that Mormon is showing us th 
through the book of Alma that the first half of the book is how missionary work can resolve conflicts and in how this priesthood narrative can try to resolve the way uh, that societies come into conflict with each other. And then the last half of the Book of Mormon really talks with the war chapters. So Mormon's like, okay, well, here we have the best of the best of the best people that can possibly be. Now, how did these things work? These are the best people and the best actors. How did war work for the Nephites? And we find out after you know more than 20 chapters of war that the Nephites end up losing everything anyway. So they lose half of their half of their lands. Um, as soon as, as soon as Captain Moroni dies and he gives it to his son Moroniha in Helaman, the Nephites come down and take over half of the land and then they can never get it back. And the Nephite, the Lamanites win. And then they send missionaries into the Lamanites and kind of recap the first half of Alma. The Lamanites are converted and then they just give the land back. Yeah. <laughs> and they end up solving with missionary work, what they were never truly able to solve with war. So it's absolutely a fascinating way that the Book of Mormon is laid out, where it will explore it some more. But next next time, we'll talk about Ammon, one of my favorites. So until next time, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.